the singing this morning was uh, more meaningful to me than it usually is, in part, well definitely, because of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be specifically looking at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, and I hope that even as we reflect upon this verse, that you will also find more meaning and even the reasoning behind why we do what we do in regard to our singing. But this morning we're going to be doing something a little different, not much different than usual. We, look, you, you, we usually look at several verses together, we'll usually take a chunk, but we're going to only be looking at one verse today, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And as we begin to dive back into chapter 3, I feel the need to continually bring us back to the beginning of the chapter. So as we've been working our way through this great chapter, I'm constantly feeling that need to come back to the beginning to remind you on the basis of, of or, or the the reasoning why Paul is, is, is giving us these commands. So he gave us a foundation in those first four verses within this chapter. That the truths of the gospel and their application to your life, that, that you have been raised with Christ, that you have died with Christ, those truths are the basis upon which Paul gives us all of these commands that we see in chapter 3. So you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ within those first four verses. Therefore, what we saw was seek the things that are above, right? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. You have been raised with Christ. You have died with Christ. So set your mind in that place. As we continue through the chapter, we thought of, well, you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly within you. Kill your sexual immorality. Kill your impurity. Kill your lying. Kill your maliciousness. Do all of this, but do all of this on the basis of the gospel that we saw in in verses 1 to 4. The next thing we saw, you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, don't just put to death what is earthly within you, although you need to do that, but put on the good things. So take off those old, filthy, dirty clothes of maliciousness and and all of those things in purity, but then put on clean clothes. Put on the beautiful garments of patience and love and all of those great truths that we saw last week. Or even in verse 15, we did not look at it like uh, I wish we had uh, in retrospect, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You've died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. And that has meaning for you right now, that the peace of Christ should rule in your hearts. And so you see, on, the, on, on every single one of these commands that we have seen, and the ones that we're going to be seeing, and again, if you look through the rest of that chapter, we're going to see something next week where everything we do should be done in the name of the Lord. We're going to look further um, at areas of the home. How do we interact within the home? We're going to see areas about even how to interact in the workplace. And all of the commands that he gives come back to that point. Come back to the foundation that you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ Therefore, live this way. So we're given these commands, not on the basis of who you are. You notice that he never says, and he never says, Paul never says in the Bible, and you'll never find in the Bible, that you're a pretty good bunch of Christians, so make sure you're just the best that you can be. You're pretty good people, so make sure you act on all of your strong points. No. He says, you have died with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ, so live like that. And in this morning's verse, he gives us another command as well. So you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
Look with me again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, one of the things that we need to straighten out before we go through the rest of this verse is we need to figure out what exactly he means by the word of Christ. It would be pretty easy to say, okay, well, the word of Christ, it's a, it's a reference to the Bible. And that's certainly at least part of the answer. But specifically, the word of Christ could refer to a couple things. Either it could be referring to the message about Christ or the message from Christ, that it could be a reference to that gospel message that he had died, he was buried, and that he rose again. And so it's the message about Christ. This is the word of Christ. Or it could be referring to the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament scriptures that they would have had in this time. Now, obviously, these two ideas are so closely related, right? The the gospel and the word itself, that they are really inseparable. And so as we go through this sermon, I'll really use the word of Christ to refer to both things, the, the gospel at work within your life and the word of God that we see, that Paul's intention is the gospel as found within the word of God. But he gives that command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember back with me to uh, John chapter 1, that beautiful passage referring to what we often refer to as the Logos, the, the Word. And what does John say about Jesus? He says that He came and He dwelled among humans, didn't He? He tabernacled among the disciples and among humans who were there in that time. And they had seen His glory. The Apostle John as an eyewitness of Jesus on earth. Can you imagine seeing all of the things that Jesus had done? Jesus dwelled among those disciples. He took residence on the earth and dwelt among the people. And now you and I don't have the opportunity to be an eyewitness of those things 2,000 years ago. For Christ to dwell among us in, in, in present bodily form at this time. But you and I do have the opportunity to let the word of Christ dwell within us. So maybe not with us, but within us. And that is beautiful. So although we don't have him dwelling with us now physically, we do have the opportunity for him to dwell with us spiritually. Consider that. Consider how how this would influence and change your life. This command is that the gospel and the word of God would dwell richly within you. That you would think about it, that you would meditate on it, that you would respond to it rightly. I think we've all probably had the unfortunate opportunity to have an unexpected or an unwanted guest at some point in our lives, right? Somebody who is surfing our couch and it seems like the wave is going on forever and they're just there and staying there and sleeping there, outstaying their welcome. But the Word of God isn't like that. The Word should dwell with us and it should be welcomed and and called to be and to remain with us. And there's a specific way Paul expects this Word to dwell. He says it should dwell richly, the verse says. So this is an indicator uh, of how we are to interact with this message of Jesus. Christians aren't to interact with this word of Christ in any kind of passe way. They're not to interact with the word of Christ in a way that is cheap or treats it as worthless or treats it as though it is an unwelcome guest within our lives. And some of you know what that can, that tension can feel like when you're in a less than sanctified moment and you're thinking, this is how I should be acting and I'm not acting this way in accordance to God's word. And you're feeling that tug as though the word of God in your life and the word of Christ in your life is a little bit of a nuisance in that moment. But it should never, ever be. It should be considered rich. It is the word of Christ. A woman down in Massachusetts just won a whole lot of money, didn't she? 
a Powerball of over $750 million. And apparently she opted to take a lump sum, which I guess that means that you just take all the money at once instead of getting installments or whatever. And that lump sum was $480 million. The government has to have their cut, so after taxes, she'll have an estimated $336 million when it's all said and done, which is less than half of what she originally won, right? So I don't think she's complaining. I think she's probably pretty happy with the $336 million. But who knows what her plan is to do with that money? But the house that she has now will probably be sold and she'll buy a better house. She'll buy better furnishings for her new house. She'll buy better cars for her garage. She'll buy a better boat if she had a boat. Everything in her life will suddenly be bigger, better, faster, nicer. Everything in her life will be elevated and brought up to a whole new level that her standard of living has never even dreamed of being at before. Although she'll probably be bankrupt in about 10 years. Seems like anybody who makes any kind of money, they end up bankrupt. But when you consider the word of Christ dwelling within you richly. This is the kind of effect that it has. It raises, it, it, it brings everything higher, although far greater than ever winning a few earthly dollars. When the word of Christ dwells within you richly and you go from somebody who does not have the word and does not have the means of the word, when you go from somebody who doesn't have that to somebody who does have that, every single thing in your life is going to change. The word of Christ and it dwelling within you richly changes everything about you. It raises the stakes of everything. And everything is so much more important because the word of Christ is now involved in your life. So your priorities change to a kingdom-mindedness. You think differently about your money. You start to think differently about how you raise your kids. You start to think differently about your possessions. You start thinking differently about how your home is structured. You start thinking differently about how you perform in your job at work. When the word of Christ dwells within you richly, you begin to align yourself in such a way with it that its effects are brightly seen in every area of your life. And all that that would be our disposition to the word of God and the gospel. That we would treasure it. That we would behold it as, as a rich and beautiful message that is impossible to even value in our lives. And we would let it dwell within us richly. You notice that's the first word of the verse? Let. Let it. You need to let it. In other words, there can be actions or things that you do that refuse the word of Christ to dwell within you richly. Some of these sins that we've already seen within this passage. The immorality, if you're involved in immorality, if you're involved in being a malicious, angry kind of person, do you think that the word of Christ is going to be able to dwell in you richly? Or will those things stifle the word of Christ? How often do we not take seriously these kinds of truths? How often do we forget about the work of Christ on our behalf? How often do we replace the truths of the gospel with the cheap relics of this world when the call from Paul is to let the word of Christ, this gospel, this word of him, dwell in you richly. The gospel is impossible to value. The word of God is impossible to value. The message that it is to dwell in us richly does so much, the least of which are the three things that we see within this text this morning, within this verse. It teaches us, it admonishes us, and it gives us cause to sing. Christian, do you love the word of Christ? I mean, do you love it? Do you love God's word? We say a lot of things that we love, don't we? We say, man, I love pizza. I love 
We love, I can't get an amen, but I can get a woo on pizza. (laughs) We love the fair, or we love the apple crisp a la mode at the fair. We love that. I'm exposing my heart to you. But we love those things, don't we? And we use that word love. But do you really love the word of God? Is this where your meditation is? Are you like the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1 where he says, I I meditate on the law of the Lord. Law of the Lord, day and night. Is, is the word to you what is said about it in Psalm 19? The rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings, drippings of the honeycomb. Do you, do you desire the word of Christ more than you would desire a pot of gold? Do you desire the word of God is coming to it every single day more important to you than winning a $750 million lottery? Would that be worth more to you to come to God's word and and not having those things? Do you come to the word of God and desire that more than even the sweetest honey? Do, do Do you love it even more than having your breakfast in the morning? By way of personal testimony, it can be very easy for me to talk about God's word all the time. To always want to bring this book to your house or to visit with you and sit and say, this is what God's word says. Listen to it. Love it. Obey it. And that's so easy. But it's so easy for me personally to come to a passage of scripture and to get so mechanical. Sunday's coming. I got to preach this text. I gotta hit the commentaries, I gotta hit the books, I gotta figure out what this passage means, and it becomes so mechanical that sometimes the heart just gets pulled right out of it. Those of you who have studied the Bible to teach it know this. It can get so mechanical if we're not careful. This is why we love the Word. We come to it as the Word of Christ. We learn it, we study it, we focus on it, we let it dwell richly within us, and when it has dwelt richly within us, then we are ready to come and to feed it to God's people. But notice that this word of Christ, what it does there in the second part of the verse, it teaches and it admonishes us. So the first thing that this word of Christ does is it teaches us. So once we were ignorant of the gospel and God's word, but now we have come to know and to understand it. Look at the verse again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So, so one another, that is a connectiveness, that is bringing this to, to practical import among the people of God. This is a one another task that we are to teach and admonish one another. You are to teach each other about the truths of God's word. Specifically according to this verse, how do we go about teaching and admonishing one another? I think it's a hard construction here. For those of you who care, there are several participles here, and it's very hard to figure out exactly what he wants to do with it. But I think that there's at least uh, an obvious conclusion that we teach and admonish each other through or with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we teach one another in this way. So it's a little bit of a hard phrasing that he uses, but likely that what he is saying is that we teach and admonish each other through our singing. And so this is key. So if you're curious about the music we use even here at our church in our worship service, this is one of the verses that we would use to say that we want the music that we have to have the qualities that teach each other. We want to sing the kind of music that admonishes each other. We want people, when we gather for worship and when we interact with each other, to be admonished in the truth of the gospel. And so when we all stand and we begin to sing together, we are quite literally teaching and admonishing one another through these songs. 
And so those who are weary and struggling and and battling, we want them to be admonished in the gospel. I shared with you a few weeks ago that a day or so before coming to worship, I didn't necessarily even want to come. And some of you came up to me afterwards and were like, yeah, been there, done that, had that feeling of sometimes I just don't want to come and worship. But there are those times when that happens. But then what happens when you come and worship the Lord with your fellow brothers and sisters? You look over and you see them worshiping and you're thankful for what God is doing within their life. And you see how he is working and how he has drawn them close and how it begins to encourage you and admonish you and teach you. How encouraging is it to look over and you see your family worshiping. You see your son or your daughter or grandkids worshiping or you see your brother and sister who you know is going through that hard time singing to their God. Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that do something within you to where it just edifies and admonishes, it teaches you even about their own faith as they come before the Lord? I'm edified simply by being with and observing my church family in worship. We're instructed in the things of God through our singing. We're admonished and encouraged and even rebuked at times in our singing. Where we sing words and we say, my life is out of line with what we just sang. I need to bring that back. This is why it's so vital to not only have our hearts engaged in the singing, which is a key component, but that our minds are also engaged and our wills are engaged as well. So we don't simply want to relegate the music side of the service to the heart or to the emotions. Those are involved, but the mind needs to be involved too. We need to be taught the word of Christ through this portion of our worship. And by singing together, we're actually teaching and admonishing one another. Now, I know I don't need to tell you this, but music is often one of those hot-button issues in churches today, and it has been for some time, right? There's a lot of discussion in regard to the kind of music that should be sung in church, and these are often referred to as worship wars, which, when you think about it, it's pretty pathetic that any kind of wars going on within a church, we should be known for our peace and unity in the midst of diverse opinions. We shouldn't be known for warring over subjects, but the reality is, All of us have different music preferences, even in our regular lives. Some of you like country music. Others of you would say, the country country music that's on the radio today, that's not country music because that's not Merle Haggard or Loretta Lynn or Johnny Cash or something like that. (laughs) Or maybe you like the oldies, you know, like the 1980s oldies with Michael Jackson and stuff like that. That's the oldies, right? But then others, if you say, absolutely not. Elvis and the Beatles are the oldies. Some of you might say the Beatles aren't even the oldies. I don't know. Or you like rock. Or you like jazz or classical or bluegrass. And then maybe some of you like rap music and we pray very hard for you. (laughs) But there is a huge sampling, isn't there? Even among our church body in this area of the world, we all have various tastes of music. But what about our music within the church. There again, we have a lot of preferences in regard to what kind of music we listen to in our cars. We all have the preferences of what should be played in church. Some of you would say, I really like rap music or I like jazz music. But then you realize that that style of music isn't conducive for a church setting because really we don't all, you don't generally see a lot of people singing together in those genres of music. So again, notice that this is something that we are doing together. It would be really difficult if we started laying down a a jazz tune and we had a big double bass, boom, 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 and then we start all singing together to a jazz tune. It just really wouldn't work. Typically, you don't see a bunch of people singing jazz music. 
Or even like rap music. It's typically sung or spoken by one person. And they say a lot of words at the same time. And there's a certain cadence to it. But you don't see a hundred people rapping together the same exact song in unison. And so I think we all naturally recognize that there are at least certain styles of music that simply don't work in a corporate worship setting. Unless maybe there's a special music or something like that. But there is still a lot in regard to preference that there is to work through. For instance, some of you really probably really like what is often referred to as the old hymns, right? And maybe you miss the days of holding a hymn book and singing out of it together. No woos or amens on that. Interesting. <laughs> but knowing that when you, like, when, when you think of that, though, that, but then again, I know that there are those who really enjoy that style of music, and that's great. I love hymns, and we've sung hymns even together. But maybe you, you loved knowing that when you came to church that you would be singing the hymns that you grew up with. And, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But then there, there are others of you who would like a, a more modern music. That you like a certain cadence in the newer songs. You like the beat or you like the words. Or you like singing off of a screen opposed to holding a hymnal. Some of you may wish that we only sang with a piano. Others may wish that we still had an organ. Or maybe some wish that we had a, a big band with drum sets and all the rest. Or an orchestra or something like that. But in truth, I think the questions that often drive are, are the conversation of music and worship are questions that shouldn't be driving the conversation at all. So all the questions of instruments that should be involved, or should it be a hymnal or a screen, or how old the new, or new the song should be, a lot of those kinds of questions, they really aren't the top level questions. Those are secondary level questions. They're important to answer, but I'm not convinced that they're near as important as we often make them out to be. Let's get something very clear. The point of worship is not your preference. The point of worship is God. And how often do we reverse that around? Where it is our preference that we are seeking to satisfy with little concern to if God is satisfied. The ultimate question that we should be asking, and I think the answer of it can be found in our text this morning, is what is God's purpose in having the church sing? Do you ever wonder about that? It is very strange when you consider the church in light of our society where a bunch of people get together every single week and one of the highlights of our meeting together is that we sing. That is strange when you look at every other area of the community. I had jury duty earlier this week. The jury didn't stand up and start singing. You don't just start singing in society. You don't go to a, a town meeting and everybody just starts standing up and singing. You'd be like, i got to get out of this town. It would just be a weird thing for a random society or a random group of people to start singing. So we really do something totally unique when we sing, don't we? Where else do you see people singing? A group at Windsor Fair, are they going to jump up and start singing? No. Maybe to a national anthem? Maybe we sing happy birthday when it's a birthday? But generally speaking, groups of people, or even people in general, don't just start singing unless they're part of a choir or cruising down the road in the car or in the shower. But we generally don't sing, which is part of why it's so amazing that as we gather together for worship, this is one of the big things that he says he wants us to do. God's expectation is that you, as a church, sing to him. He wants you to do this. You even see examples of this in the Bible, don't you? Where God's people... They respond to him in song. 
So a great, beautiful miracle happens and the, the sea is parted, right? And the people of Israel go through that sea. And what's it say in Exodus 15? Once they get out of the other side, the waves come crashing down, wipe out the Egyptians. And in Exodus 15, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Or you think of even Mary's Magnificat, where she finds out about the Christ child within her womb. And what does she do? She sings. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And there are other examples in the Bible where God does something and people respond with singing. And you may have never really noticed this, but if you look at your bulletin, our worship is set up in this sort of a way. Where God calls us to worship from the Psalms or, or some sort of text where he said, I, I rejoice when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord or come, let us worship the Lord. Let's enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. He, he calls us to worship through the word of God. And then we respond to him with singing. Or God speaks to us in His Word and we see this through the Scripture reading and the sermon. And then after the sermon, after the Scripture reading, we we respond in song. God speaks to us through His Word and we sing back to Him. We thank Him for the things that He has done and the things that He has told us through the preaching and reading of His Word. This is what God's people do. They respond to the greatness of God that they have beheld in the Word of Christ in song. And what does Paul describe here for our response? And so this is a conversation, really. Our worship is a conversation between the church and God. God talks through His Word. We sing the Word back to Him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But what are we supposed to sing? What does God want us to sing? This text says that He wants us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What is accomplished through the singing? We've already looked at it. We are taught and we are admonished. Who are the ones that are supposed to sing? The text says, one another. How do we sing? We sing with thankfulness in our hearts. Who do we sing to? We sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So if we're looking at the text and what the Bible says about singing, and we see clearly the answers to some of these top-level questions, why do we get so worked up about some of those extra things when it comes to worship? You see, again, so often what happens is we lose perspective about God's desire in our singing because we're so focused on our own perspective, my own desires, instead of focusing on God's desires when His desires are so clear, even in a simple verse like this. Consider these questions a little further with me. What do we sing? We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's a lot of discussion of what this actually means. But certainly the psalms is very evident. If you were to take your Bible and to break it right open in the middle, you would come to the book of the Bible that we call Psalms, right there in the center. And this is the songbook of the Bible. So you have certain parts of the Bible, if you were to kind of analyze it, you would say, okay, there's, there's some history here, there's letters over here, there's some gospels over here, and then right in the middle there, there's a songbook. With the expectation that God wants us to sing. There's 150 psalms. So we're to sing these Which is why we even sung one today. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Glory in His temple. All cry together. Glory. And if you were to look at Psalm 29, you would see a very close correlation between what we sang, although metrically better, and then over in Psalm 29. You would see it there. But then you have hymns. These are written songs of some kind that are in line with the gospel and the word of Christ. 
They address God. They speak of him. They praise him. Remember, after the Last Supper, the disciples in Jesus, it says that they sang a hymn together. It says that in Matthew chapter 26. Then he says spiritual songs. This could denote something a bit more impromptu, or it could be something marked off specifically as sacred. But the point is clear. We're talking about about songs that seek to praise the Lord and that are scriptural, that have the word of Christ even dwelling within them as songs. You think of even a correlation over in Ephesians 5. He says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. I've talked about this before, but speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs would be like coming together for worship. It would be kind of like a musical, right? We would just start singing at each other and just start talking in song together or an opera of some kind. But the truth is, and maybe you haven't realized this, but did you know that God sings? What would it be like to hear God sing? But God is a singer. Zephaniah says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God is a singer. We should be like God. We should sing. Specifically, we need to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what the Bible tells us to do. And by way of application, the songs that we sing should be relentlessly biblical, shouldn't they? The songs that we sing should be relentlessly biblical. I've mentioned this question before from a well-known worship leader named Bob Coughlin, but this is his question, at least my attempt at remembering it. He says, if you didn't have a Bible... And all you knew about God was from the songs that you sing. What would you know about God? That's a boring question. If you didn't have a Bible and all you knew about God was from the songs that you sing, what would you know about God? The Colossian people did not have the entire Bible. They may have had a copy of the entire Old Testament. But they did not have the New Testament, aside from Colossians, that they were reading. But that's probably all that they had. No printing press, no website to just pull up a Bible or an app to pull up a Bible. So they probably all didn't even have a copy, maybe one within their assembly. And so to hear the scripture read and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for these first century Christians would be so vital because this is where they would learn so much about what they know about God. We take for granted that we all have a Bible in our hands and laying all across this room right now. But the Colossians and some of the Christians, even now across the world, could only dream to have a Bible in their hands. And so to come together and to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is so vital and where we should be learning from. We should sing songs that literally instruct us, that teach us, that bring us in line with the Word of God, admonishing us. In that way. And the way this fleshes out in the context of the church is in regard to the songs that we sing within our corporate worship. We do our very best to pick biblically solid, God honoring songs to sing, even with that question in mind at times. And then, even by way of, of, of a little bit of a detour, even by way of some of the preferences involved. We would try to balance things out, have some newer songs, have some quicker songs, have some hymns and so forth, and mix it all together and bring before the congregation what is most important, songs that are biblically true and right. If the songs that we sing today are meant to instruct us, what are they going to teach us about God? One author said this, 
Not every traditional hymn is good simply because it is old. And not every contemporary song is unfit for worship simply because it is new. There are bad traditional songs and there are edifying contemporary songs. Our goal in worship should be to sing those songs that cause us to ponder the greatness of God, to glorify Him for His salvation, and help us understand His Word. Let the songs we use for public worship and private devotion do all of these kinds of things. If you didn't have a Bible and all you knew about God was from the songs that you sing, what would you know about God? Do the songs that you sing and listen to and enjoy, do they instruct and admonish you in the things of God? Or do they lack the substance to do that? And we need to ask God for discernment in this regard. We need to ask God, as we listen to songs, maybe even songs that fall within our preference, maybe even Christian songs that we listen to on the radio, maybe even songs that we grew up singing, And we can take it for granted and say, well, it has the title of Christian, therefore it must be good. But oftentimes we need to have a discerning eye and to look at the song for what it is and say, is God's truth there? Does the word of Christ even dwell within that song? Does it have aspects of teaching and admonishing? Or should I actually probably not waste time listening to that song? It's true. But next, who are the ones who should be singing? The church sings one another. This is something that we're all to do together. Again, this is a strange thing in our world today. There isn't much by way of people just gathering together to sing. I liked one point from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I quoted him last week as well. But he says, It is the voice of the church that is heard in singing together. It is not you that sings. It is the church that is singing. And you, as a member of the church, may share in its song. Now, don't misunderstand. You, of course, are personally singing when you are singing, and it is very personal in aspects. And how God works through His truth as we're singing can be very powerful. But it's the church that comes together. It is the church that is responding back to God in unison. But a very practical point in that we are to sing together is that the songs that we sing must be singable. So we don't sing certain styles because it's... Because it's just inconducive for all the people, or for most people. Or when we pick a key for a song to be sung. And for you, those of you who don't really know music, there are different keys that you can pick for a song. And if you pick a higher key, it makes it go higher. This is why you can't sing with Chris Tomlin on the radio, because he sings way up here, and you can't sing that high. Or I can't sing that high anyway. So we try to even pick uh, songs that, fit, that are singable, that the congregation can grasp, and, and we can all sing together. I struggled for years and years when I was younger with a self-consciousness over my singing. And it's easy to get a little self-conscious, isn't it? When it's not really loud, maybe the music's not really loud, and we're a little more insecure about, oh, the person next to us might hear me sing and so forth. Or uh, some of you have come up to me and said, oh, you don't want me helping with the music when I ask for people to help with the music. Oh, you don't want me to help, or I can't carry a tune in the bucket and all those kind of things. But you know what? What a beautiful thing it is to hear people sing regardless of what it sounds like. I'd love to hear a hundred, I'd rather, frankly, a hundred tone-deaf people singing their hearts and minds out to God than a bunch of people who can sing that are singing half-heartedly. The point is, this is in regard to our singing. We, we mutually teach and admonish one another in our worship. And so we sing songs that are singable, that are good for the congregation, the whole congregation to come together and to sing, and even in our own posture before the Lord. I mean, you think about it. This is Sunday. This is when churches gather together and worship. And imagine the angels in glory now, and they're all singing praise to the Father, and they're even with Him. And then churches 
all throughout the world, the thousands and thousands and thousands of churches singing to God in different languages and in different places and at different times of the day, different you know, people who have already gathered together for worship hours before us, and there are still people who are going to worship after us. And through this whole day, God is in heaven receiving the glory and praise of his people to him in song. What a beautiful thing that is. And how his throne room must be filled with those who have sung. But notice the next question. How do we sing? Verse 16 again makes it clear. We sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Everything that a Christian does should be done with a grateful heart. As a result of this word of Christ dwelling within us, we teach, admonish, and sing, and we do it all with with a thankful heart. Guys, so many Christians walk around with sour looks on their faces. They look miserable. And God gives us the most beautiful gift of salvation, and we walk around like spoiled, rotten kids on Christmas morning, totally ungrateful. He gives us everything that he had. He gave us his only begotten son. And we act like it's not good enough in our response to him. When in reality, we should respond to this eternal gift with eternal praises of song. Now, when you're grateful to somebody, you sing their praises, right? Somebody goes out of their way to help you with a a flat tire, something so simple, and you just thank them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yet God has saved us from eternal hell. He has saved us from wasting our lives. He has saved us from wrath. He has saved us to eternity and glory. And what do we often so do? Half-hearted singing. Half-hearted praise. Half-hearted gratitude. Irregular times of praise and thanks and prayer. He gave us so much. And our level of gratitude is so small. Do you see that in your life? Because I see it in mine. Is every day thanksgiving when it comes to your relationship with Jesus? Do you thank Him when you come to worship? Do you bring your heart, your mind, and your will together to thank Him for His invaluable gift of Christ to you? But finally, who do we give thanks to all for for, for all that He has done as a result of the Word and dwelling within us richly? We give thanks specifically to God. He is the sole recipient of the praise and the glory. Everything comes back to God because everything comes from Him and flows through Him. Everything that happens within our worship services, in the actions of our church, any good that is brought about as a result of what we do as individuals, He gets the praise and the glory for all. We do not get the pat on the back. He gets all the glory and the praise. He is good enough to provide us with good gifts. And one day in glory, He will give crowns and He will give back but we are undeserving brothers and sisters do you let the word of christ dwell in you richly as you sing together every single week do you take that as a time for your not only your heart to be engaged and enthralled with god and your affections to be stoked but mentally your mind is it there are you are you learning about your god as you sing to him and as you do all the things that you do are you thankful Is your heart filled with thankfulness? And are you fully aware of the audience that you are singing to? God himself. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we have songs to sing. 
We're, we're thankful that you created music. We're thankful that you want us to even be instructed through song. That we're taught and admonished and we respond back to you in all of your greatness and glory in song. Thank you for the word of Christ. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for the word of God that we all take for granted that is sitting in our laps right now. Help us to love it. Not because we love its material pages or bindings, but because we love the one who wrote it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Let's respond to him in song.